This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 106. Good morning. Hello, David. How are you? Just fine, thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Um, well, thanks for setting some time aside. Uh, let me uh, go ahead and get this out of the way. How do I pronounce your name? Per Espen Stockness, or anywhere else close to that. You. <laughs> so if I say so, Pear, that's okay? That's what I usually do when I'm in the U.S., yeah. Just okay. call me Pear. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm... <laughs> this is an interview I did a while back with... Per Espen Stocknes. He's a psychologist in Norway who wrote a book titled What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. I'm Per Espen Stocknes. Uh, I'm a professorship at Norwegian Business School. I teach uh, green economics and uh, also I'm a psychologist in background. Uh, so I also consult within uh, climate communications and uh, written a new book on this topic. He put together this strategy for science communicators who find themselves confronted with climate change deniers. And, of course, he also is trying to help scientists who find themselves in that weird situation where they are dealing with people who don't believe that they are experts on this topic. They don't believe that they actually know what they're talking about. They are denying them. They deny the fact that they have any evidence whatsoever that climate change is real. So he's developed a psychology-based strategy for working with people like that. I thought for this episode, I would just present what he had to say when I interviewed him about that strategy and the guidebook he published on it last year. Yeah, this is what I call the, in, in, in this issue, uh, the psychological climate paradox. Uh, and um, the paradox is really that since 1989, that's 25 years, 26 years now, um, the amount of scientific facts and the certainty of the science has been growing very strongly. So we have had like five IPCC reports and more than 30,000 new uh, climate science articles published, which all underline the, the seriousness of the problem. But if you look at the polls, um, the weird thing happens is that since 1989, um, people's concern for climate change has actually declined. Uh, and um, this psychological climate paradox is 
particularly prevalent in um, wealthy democracies such as the US, Canada, UK, Norway, Australia, uh, which are both um, uh, like to see themselves as uh, rational, modern, and uh, but also petroleum-based mm-hmm. uh, and economies. So what I've done is to really uh, condense the, let's say, the three or four hundred articles that have been published within psychology and um, sociology and social anthropology into a set of psychological barriers that create this paradox. So there are psychological barriers inside us or mechanisms that come into play when there is, uh, uh, so we say, an uncomfortable um, science message that's coming our way. So you uh, early on in the book, you, you write about how there is a sort of a, a golden rule to psychotherapeutic approaches. And um, you talk about how when we have something that seems like it's been a solution in the past, uh, mm. like a habitual solution, that we can use it so often that it becomes part of the problem, and we end up doubling down our efforts when facing difficult problems instead of trying to go about moving to a different course. Could you sort of elaborate on on that? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of quite common, as you say, within coaching and psychotherapy that. If you have a problem, you try harder the way you have tried to solve it. But then gradually what you do is by pushing harder and harder, you're just reinforcing the problem because you're doing something that also contributes to, to the problem. And this has been the case in terms of uh, climate science communications because um, there has been this uh, conviction that if only we could get the facts out to people, then they would kind of come to their minds and senses and recognize that this is important or this is serious. Uh, however, having tried that and seen that it hadn't, didn't have the intended effect, uh, what has the climate science uh, communicators done? Well, they're doubled their efforts and put a little bit of doom and apocalypse into it. If we don't change our ways now, we're on our way to a four degree plus or even worse, a burning world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to, and to but for them as rational messengers, rational scientists, they wouldn't say like burning world or toast world. No, in the IPCC report, they come up with an incredibly communicative name of RCP 8.5. <laughs> and this is one example, you know, by sticking so hard to your science that you tend to forget that you're actually uh, trying to reach out to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets the opposite effect of what you intended, which is that people distance themselves from it and are turned off. So, I mean, I, 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 you see a lot of these videos. I, I remember something that went around on the internet a while back. It was a clip from um, HBO's The Newsroom where the, they had the climate scientists saying that we're all doomed and everything. And I think that that stuff... I would speculate that that sort of thing is really sort of a dog whistle effect so that like all the people who already are already on your side, they are the ones who watch that kind of stuff and read that kind of stuff and say, look at this. And they share it around on their social networks. Mm. But, but among the people who are opposed to this or deny it or, or for whatever reason uh, feel like they, that this is not a message that they accept those that just bounces off of them and, and becomes evidence for how crazy the other side is. And so, um, and that's, yeah. that's sort of the gist of what I see in a lot of what you talk about in this book. So what, 
this if this rational strategy, you know, the, our quote unquote rational strategy doesn't work, this confrontational thing doesn't work. This sort of shoving the facts down people's throats doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Mm. And, and what is the what is a better, broader alternative to just saying, "Look at this fact. Look at this fact." Exactly. Um, so, in a way, um, when the scientists have been pushing uh, facts at people, it's been repeating the same experiment over and over, and seeing that it has, has the same outcome, but not uh, being willing to change how you do it. So, the, the principle then is, we should do something else. We should try something else than just pushing the facts. Mm-hmm. And the reason it doesn't work is that those who are, as you mentioned, ready to take it in, they have already heard. Um, so you could kind of segment the um, population into six main groups, if you will. Uh, some say they are alarmed, and this is the, about 13% of the population, and they have heard and they have understood. Then there are a, a group called the concerned, which are like 31%, and they're also quite convinced but even if they want a more vigorous policy, they're somewhat less involved in the issue. And then you have the rest of the population, which then adds up to typically a little bit more than 50%, who are either cautious, disengaged, doubtful, or downright uh, dismissive of the whole issue. So among these other groups, um, uh, the, th- uh, the 13%, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, or the 87%, um, Quite a few psychological barriers, as I mentioned, uh, are involved in creating this uh, negative impact of, from climate science on people's concern. Mm-hmm. And I give these names that all start with D, just for the kind of yeah, simplicity. Sure. Let's, let's go uh, through these. These are these are really cool. These these are the five Ds of uh, of climate. Den- well, the den- uh, not really denial. No, uh, denial's in there. The five Ds of, of how would you put it? How would you put it? Yeah, um, it's the five psychological mechanisms that kind of uphold the psychological um, paradox of mm-hmm. the climate. That we, yep. the more facts we get, the less uh, concerned we go. Um, and the first of these is, as I briefly mentioned, distancing. Because when we um, hear about climate change, it's typically positioned in the year two thousand one hundred mm-hmm. or two thousand two hundred. Like you know, you've maybe heard the news that Antarctica is now melting. There's no way it's going to be stopped. And in 200 years, there will be more than a meter of sea level rise. Well, when people hear that, uh, they think, 2,200, did you say that? <laughs> and it's so way out distance beyond what people uh, care about in their ordinary lives, uh, which is like this month or this week, uh, that um, the issue importance kind of just goes down compared to the other more pressing stuff we have on our on our to-do lists. Um, so there's the distance in time, and there's also distancing in terms of social um, or, or the space, where when typically they've been using a lot of imagery of melting ice and polar bears and the flooding in Bangladesh or uh, uh, cyclones in the Pacifica, and all these images are very distant in space from us. So it's happening far in the future, and it's happening far away from me. And thirdly, the people who are typically um, uh, suffers the consequences of climate change, they're people I don't really know. They're 
socially distant from me. I don't know them. I don't know the pe- uh, even know somebody who knows them. Mm-hmm. And and this uh, social distance, so to speak, creates um, a lowering of concern, particularly if. Uh, it's said like, uh, you know, uh, one million people were displaced by the storm. But we know that people don't really relate well to statistics such as that. One person is a tragedy, but one million is statistics. Mm-hmm. And um, we have yet another way of distancing ourselves from it, and that is uh, in terms of responsibility. When we hear about um, uh, politicians and negotiators and all these international uh, COP rounds, like we'll have another one now in Paris in this December coming up. But we had them before, like in Copenhagen, Warsaw, Lima, etc. And what we hear is that people who we don't know uh, stand up and say, we must act now. And then everybody uh, agrees that the only thing they agree on is that they will meet again next year. <laughs> right. And so it's outside my scope of influence, so to speak. Um, that's a psychological concept. I can care and do something about what I have a kind of self-efficacy in the terms of if I do it, it will have an effect. But with these negotiations that are so far removed from me in responsibility, it just creates helplessness and uh, I want to kind of give up feeling. So the first barrier is very important in terms of creating this reduction in the sense of urgency and in and the sense of uh, felt risk or and concern. It seems so strange, though, because, I mean, we have all these, there are all these mechanisms of distance when it comes mm. to this issue, but it seems like, you know, we, everywhere I am, I am being affected by climate. Every, every, like it's a persistent part of our day-to-day lives, yet it's strange that we would find, have, feel a psychological distance from the actual issue. Um, is there is, pro, is part of that a problem? Is part of the problem that people sort of conflate weather and climate as being the same thing? You think maybe? Uh, it's an interesting point you mentioned there because people tend to um, get more concerned uh, about global warming when there's been a hot period, and if there is a cold period, then the concern falls. And this is even statistically reflected in. Uh, in um, news media and the types of articles that are published. So the number of editorials and the number of articles about climate change, they go way up if there's a heat wave, and then when it goes cold, they go way down. Um, (laughs) So this just shows to me how dominant, psychologically speaking, in our attention, what is uh, that the near takes predominance Mm -hmm. of the more distant or the long term. Mm Okay, let's move on to doom. This is, uh, it, yeah. was, it would seem like, on the surface here, it would seem like these messages of doom would get people to act, but it, uh, you say that it actually ends up backfiring. How does that work? Yeah, well, um, as um, the framing, so to speak, of climate message has been that um, if we continue as today, we'll all end up in a burning planet or in hell, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this doom and apocalypse framing uh, sets up a state of mind where we are felt somewhat guilty. Uh, there's a certain fear in it. And um, what uh, is quite well known to psychology is that if people feel fear and guilt, then they're not really motivated to get engaged. Rather, they quickly learn uh, what we call avoidance behavior. 
So on the one hand, we do habituation to it. We heard it so many before, times before. It seems like it's always the end is nigh, <laughs> uh, always the, the last times. Uh, and then um, uh, if we feel any fear and guilt still after that, we tend to get pacified by it. Uh, we do not get active and want to do something with it. So fear and guilt is good at making people want to avoid the messenger and the message. Uh, and we quickly learn uh, how to filter it out. So that's the problem with using doom as the main framing for uh, climate message. It backfires very quickly on the on the um, on the issue. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. Okay, I want to tell you about something that really is one of my favorite things in the world. It's called the Great Courses. The Great Courses is a big part of our household. We watch them all the time. We often choose The Great Courses over Netflix or Hulu or YouTube. It's just so great. I love being able to learn about anything that interests me whenever I want. And with The Great Courses Plus, I can do that. I can spend hours watching these fascinating video lectures, learning from award-winning experts about topics that interest me, like logic, psychology, photography, playing chess, I say this all the time, but I really enjoyed one about visualizing mathematics. It just it just changed the way I think forever. And there are more than 8,000 different lectures that will change the way that you think forever because there is always something new to explore. Now, recently, I enjoyed watching The Intelligent Brain. It's a fascinating look into the research behind intelligence. It's all about the validity of IQ testing, what we've learned about the brain through imaging technology and and the latest research into intelligence and, and primate brains. I want you to start watching The Great Courses Plus, just like us. They're giving my listeners a fantastic limited time offer. It's, it's about the best thing you could ever get. Listen to this. You get one month for free, and you get 50% off your next three months. You, you have to do this. It's the best thing ever. This generous offer extends your unlimited access for several months as you enjoy their huge library of engaging video lectures. But get this, you must sign up through my URL in the next few weeks. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. You have to get on this right now if you want a free month and 50% off your next three. Remember, that special offer is just for a limited time at thegreatcoursesplus.com dot com slash smart. That's the great courses plus dot com slash smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and we're listening to sort of a raw interview with Per Espen Stocknes. And we're going to get right back to where we just left off. That's what's interesting. I, and I've read there are similar effects when it comes to um, di dieting and, and exercise. Like people can, um, the, <laughs> you, you think that messages that say you're going to get fat or messages that you're going to die of heart disease, or you're going to, even when, mm -hmm. it comes to, even when it comes to smoking, those messages, exactly. it, the, it seems like those are going to work on people, but really what it does is, is it just, it creates that situation that you were describing where people will just simply 
find a way to rationalize away what they're wanting to um, what they're wanting to do in the first place because we're very, exactly we're very very good at that. So exactly, and that brings us to the third barrier, so to speak, which is uh, the dissonance barrier. Mm-hmm. So these are somewhat distinct, but also somewhat connected. So if we get through the di- the distance barrier by saying that the climate change is here and now, and making it kind of visible to people, and then um, if we manage to avoid the doom barrier, which is deeply uh, pacifying to people, and then thirdly, we hit typically the dissonance barrier. And the reason for this is that oh, uh, one, what we do conflicts with what we know. Mm-hmm. Then this generates a type of uh, uncomfortable feeling inside of us that um, psychology is called the dissonance. Uh, it's really from, like you said, with smoking, if I know that uh, I smoke, and I also know that smoking kills or smoking leads to cancer. Uh, this generates um, some, yeah, uncomfortableness, unease, um, some, something that's not quite right in terms of my self-image because I like to see myself as a good person. And then uh, quite a few of uh, creative strategies are typically employed to uh, kind of get rid of this uh, dissonance. Mm-hmm. So we're very, our brains are very creative when it comes to coming, coming up with good uh, justifications, so we don't have to really um, bother too much uh, about this dissonance, or we'll get rid of it. So, for instance, we could say that if I smoke, to do that example first, I can modify one by saying, I really don't smoke that much. Actually, my friend smokes even more than me, so I'm probably fine. Mm-hmm. I can also change the perceived importance of one of them. I could say, well, actually, the evidence is quite weak that smoking causes cancer. You know, I have this aunt, she, she smoked you know, 40 a day, but she's fit as a fiddle. And then I had my uncle, he actually died of cancer, but he never smoked. So, you know, it can't be that clear or that uh, strong. So by telling myself this, I kind of reduce the felt dissonance. And what we're seeing now in climate is that we're we're having this the same type of responses. So if I have like two contradictory um, elements between my, what I do and what I act, uh, sort of do and what I know, such as I have high emissions, I live a high energy, fossil, fu- fossil fuel energy intensive life. And secondly, CO2 leads to climate change or climate disruptions. Well, this generates in the same way as we're smoking this dissonance. Mm-hmm. And then how can I get rid of that? Well, I could use the same strategies in, as a is used in terms of smoking, I can say, well, my emissions are really quite insignificant. It's, it's there. It's the Chinese or it's the Kuwaitis or it's the um, uh, Indians that are now you know, making all these things. They're emitting more than, than we are. So that helps a little bit and quite, that, that's been used to a certain extent. Excuse me. And then we could also change the importance of one cognition, saying that, well, the evidence is quite weak that CO2 causes warming, really. Uh, I heard from one scientist who says it's the sunspots. And this is an interesting point, because um, when people... I mean, there has been a well-funded and well-oiled uh, misinformation campaign, right, with uh, the big oil money paying for, for a lot of these messages that mm-hmm. climate change isn't really happening or it hasn't warmed since the year 1998. And... With very little brain power and very, very few facts, they are able to kind of get their message across. And one of the reasons why 
this is that is that there may be a, a kind of demand side to uh, this disbelief. So we have a supply and we have a demand side, and the demand side is really generated by this dissonance feeling. Because if I then um, really start to question or doubt the the evidence, well, it makes my dissonance go away, doesn't it? Right, right. Um, also, I could you know do more than thing, more things like this, as you mentioned with dieting uh, or smoking. I can say that actually I've now installed a heat pump or a solar panel on my roof. So my trip to Thailand now doesn't really matter. I've come to that. <laughs> right. uh, in psychology, we call that strategy for moral licensing. Because I've done one good thing, I can now do, uh, continue as, uh, as, uh, as, as usual, so to speak. And then yeah. if this dissonance goes back and forth, uh, you know, I, I try to explain it away, but it doesn't really go away. And it comes back, and then I maybe have a friend who confronts me, or I hear again, the, read again some news, some of the science. I can also be tempted to kind of end up with just completely, simply denying that the cognitions are related. I can say there is no evidence linking CO2 and climate change. And then I would have to add some story to, to kind of justify that. And I could say, for instance, that, well, this is just uh, the leftist left side. Now, now that Marx is dead... Uh, they need another excuse to right. make a bigger government or put up the taxes. Or this, these climate scientists are just screaming because they want to have more uh, government funds for their own research. So by making these kind of stories, um, I'm able to get let my dissonance go away. And that feels better. Mm -hmm. feels good. So this is part of the backlash, uh, the part of the reason why that in, in, um, since 1989... When, because we haven't had uh, behaviors, actions that are consistent with what we know, this creates the, the dissonance, and then the, uh, the dissonance is done away by, by these simple psychological strategies that, you know, right. makes us makes us feel better. And then, and then your your fifth uh, D is identity, which is sort of, and I'm I'm assuming this is more along the lines of you sort of have a social construct of who you are yourself and everything, and and then you have this. Uh, network of people that uh, you know this you your very um, your very identity as a human being and your social network could come into thread if you were to flip on this issue. What would other people think, and what how how would you realign yourself? Is that more in line with what you're thinking? Exactly, because if uh, my sense of self uh, and my lifestyle, my professional self, my, my, that is my job. Uh, etc. are threatened by news or facts or some or some messenger, then uh, I, I inevitably encounter resistance to take that in, and I prefer to shoot back at the other to protect myself or my self-esteem. So maybe the simplest example of this is a new uh, trend uh, in the U.S. that I found. You know, cars are typically expressions of ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. the, the brand of car and how you drive it, and you know. So, if you let's say if you have a, a big SUV with a, a truck with a diesel engine, and then um, there comes this um, Enviro guy, maybe driving his Prius or uh, electric car, and uh, it comes up into your bumper, or maybe or gets a bit too close, and you feel, huh, what is he doing here? Mm -hmm. And um, then uh, this, this has become a market for this. It's called rolling coal. 
which is a piece of equipment you can install in the engine. Um, so when you hit the button on the dashboard, it injects um, more diesel than the, the motor can do. And suddenly you can uh, make a huge cloud of uh, soot oh and, and carbon and just drown out the, that um, Prius right behind you. <laughs> so this product is called the, the Prius Repellent, and it's uh, on sale for about $500. Oh my God. That's, oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> so it just shows the extent of um, identity protection, how that, so, that works. Yeah. So I'm thinking, okay, so the, the kind of person that might buy that or people of all stripes that are uh, on the side of I don't believe in global warming, I don't believe in human, you know, anthropogenic climate change, people who don't believe that and all that stuff. It seems so weird to me, the people you're, you know, that, that are in the throes of all these psychological mechanisms you describe, if you were like... Let's say you were in a, you know, you were in in college and you were listening to a scientist talk about volcanoes or a scientist talking about how mosquitoes, uh, you know, the life cycle of a mosquito. There's all these, there are many different things that people will hear about in the world of science that's that's you know beyond their layperson understanding. But when they hear scientists and experts talking to them about that sort of thing, they accept that this person is an expert. They accept that they. Uh, don't really understand this fully, and this person mm. does, and they they uh, will take that person's advice. Why is it on this issue that people suddenly stop and say, mm, "I don't know about that"? It seems like a strange thing. To, it seems strange to go, "I don't know about all those thousands of experts on this topic." I think I know better than them. Why is this a sticking point for people and other scientific uh, ideas or not? Yeah, um, the. Um... When you hear some expert talking, uh, then we typically want to know a little bit about uh, what's his identity. Is he uh, in my tribe, so to speak, or is he from somewhere else? And studies have been done that show if uh, the expert holds the same values, for instance, religious or um, in terms of um, uh, politics, then I tend to trust that expert more, mm. even if even if it's uh, a fake expert. Uh, so this identity protection, this last barrier, wants us to kind of cherry pick or select uh, what kind of experts we are willing to listen to when the issue has been politicized, and that's what happened with the climate uh, issue. Since it's been become an identity issue, it's now more. You know, it's now more uh, polarizing in mm. politics than even um, abortion or gay rights and, and uh, uh, guns. Uh, so, in this case, when the issue has been politicized, then suddenly we start to screen the values of the expert before we make up our minds. And this is the, the way that identity protective cognition actually works. I, uh, I prefer to uh, give more weight to maybe one expert who has the same values as me, than a thousand who seem to have opposing values. Mm -hmm. That's really strange. You know, you can imagine, I can imagine, it seemed, I think if, if it, this hadn't happened, it would seem so bizarre because it would seem like strange. Like imagine if like astronomy became politicized and that there would be like that person, <laughs> that person, that person's not in my, that person's in my, in the out group. I'm in this in group. I, yeah. I don't believe there is a Jupiter. I don't care what you show me. Those are all faked. I mean, that's, it's so amazing that something that is purely empirical. That's that, and for the most part, is just a bunch of numbers and charts and graphs. Can mm. become 
infused with these political values and then put people in their camps. It seems so strange. And and the idea that it could happen to this scares me because I, I think, well, maybe it could happen to any scientific principle. And, and it has in the past, of course. And, and uh, the fact that it's happening to this right now is a real, for a lot of people, it's a real conundrum. And you, you write... Um, you identify these, your book is fantastic because you identify all five of these things and you, you sort of lay the, the foundation before that. But then you have some real practical advice uh, on what we actually should be doing instead of what we are doing now. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. We have, um, before we run out of time, let's go into some of what are some things that we can do to counteract these psychological mechanisms. Great. Yeah, let's talk about solutions. Um, first, Knowing these barriers help you define your success criteria for better uh, climate communications. So you can kind of flip them over to see whether new types of climate communication actually will be uh, hitting the barrier or can maybe help us move past it, move beyond them. So the first is to make climate issue feel more personal, more near and urgent. That's the distance, you break that one. Uh, You can also do that by making it more social, which I'll come back to. And then the doom barrier have to be bypassed by using framings that do not backfire on the issue through negative feelings. And thirdly, we need to reduce the dissonance by making it easier and simpler for people to do uh, visible and consistent actions. And uh, fourthly, um, we have to need, uh, start um, avoid the emotional need for denial, which is uh, the feeling of being acu- accused and uh, in, in, in guilt. And th- fifthly, we have to reduce the po- cultural and political polarization on the issue by better storytelling that um, embraces values of uh, other segments of the, of the population. So in summary, I've given these new strategies the uh, name starting with S, just five here too. There are uh, social uh, simple, supportive stories and signals. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you want, I can just dive into the first one, which yeah, is yeah, the yeah. social social network strategy. Uh, we have to make the climate message more social because, as I said, um, we, if you only talk about glaciers and Arctic ice or polar bears or uh, Bangladesh or uh, island, Pacific islands, it's Way, way far from me. But if it's something that happens in my network uh, with something that people that I care about, then suddenly it, it feels much more near and more personal and more um, uh, urgent too, because it's, it's here and now in a way. So I have some, a few examples of how this works. Um, some uh, communities are trying to get out of the gloom and starting to do more like parties uh, and get-togethers and having fun together when they do uh, local community issues such as sports games. You might have heard of um, the Green Sports Alliance. They do like um, the greening of sports events and then uh, the sports stars are the people that you look up to the sports people. They, they get influenced through uh, peer messengers that are much closer to, to themselves. Mm-hmm. than a distant climate scientist. But also ordinary neighborhoods, such as um, uh, if there's one neighbor who puts up solar panels on his roof, uh, then suddenly the likelihood of the others in the same area 
goes way up. So you could say initiatives such as rooftop solar is contagious. And people don't do it because of the climate, but because of, uh, they see that others are doing it as well. Right. And this, was, this came very clearly out of an experiment that was done by um, a professor called Bob Cialdini, uh, who put up um, hundreds of households into four groups. And the first group, we're told, they should uh, conserve power for the sake of uh, sustainability. Uh, it's good for the earth. Uh, the second group, we're told, they should conserve energy because of their children and their children's children their, and the future generations. The third group, we're told, they should conserve energy because it's profitable. Uh, you save money by cutting your power bill. And the fourth group, we're told how much they are using compared to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right, uh, right. The, the very clear message was that uh, the most motivational message was the one where I could compare myself to what my neighbors were doing. Mm-hmm. And this is what we call using the power of social networks. And you might have heard of the company Opower because they've taken this research and then leveraged it into a business idea. Uh, and so now you can get your power bill um, uh, on your power bill. You can get your comparison to your efficient neighbors and to right. all neighbors. Right, right. And then if you're doing better than them, you get typically two smiles and great. Uh, or if you're, in the, if you're in the middle, you get a good and a smiley. And if you're below, you don't get any frown because they don't use frowns. <laughs> right. You have to be on the positive side. So Cialdini's point is that people just don't want to conserve energy. They want actually to be acknowledged for conserving energy. And this little twist is what makes the whole difference in terms of motivation to do something about it. We call this using the power of social norms because if I believe that other people whom I care about or are in my network do something with it, then I will do do so too. And the opposite, if I believe that nobody's taking action on this, then I won't bother either. Right. And by then having people see that, for instance, like sports events or solar panel spreading or solar panel clubs or um, making your power consumption visible either through an app or text messaging or the bill, all these things adds up um, so that um, you shift the baseline, so to speak, of what is considered the social norm or the, the typical ways. If I'm, in, if I'm in doubt what to do, then I will ask, what would other people do in my situation? And then I would typically do what I believe most other people are doing. Mm-hmm. This has to do with the extent to which we humans are social imitators. And that goes way back into our evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. We're very good at that. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. I love learning just for the pure pleasure of it. And that's why I'm a big fan of the Great Courses Plus video learning service. They have more than 7,000 engaging video lectures presented by top professors on so many topics. And you can subscribe to the Great Courses Plus to get unlimited access to all of them. Watch all that interests you anytime. Now, I recently watched their popular course, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, presented by astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. And if you loved Cosmos, this is a deeper dive into the heart of some of science's greatest mysteries, including extraterrestrial life, multiple universes, 
string theory, what it means for life to be intelligent if we then find life and think that maybe it could be intelligent. I love this course because it's about what we don't know about the universe. And for a limited time, you can watch a lecture from the inexplicable universe absolutely free. No strings attached. But you can only get this limited time offer by going to, here it is, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. So watch this free lecture today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. And now the conclusion of our interview with Pear Espen Stocknes. So the, you, your next frame is um, about being supportive, about, about making sure you employ frames that support your message. Right. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, um, the doom frame tends to uh, backfire. And another similar frame that uh, has been used by economists is that it's so costly to do something about the climate. So it's very expensive. And if you say um, it's not costly, you're still activating that framing. So what's emerging are new uh, main uh, fr supportive frames is, first of all, the health framing. Because if you state that climate change is really about the health of people, um, because it otherwise it increases uh, uh, pollen allergies, uh, asthmas, uh, heat-related violence, heat-related uh, uh, heart strokes, uh, more infectious disease, all these kind of things, mental health problems that are here right now, uh, then it's like uh, this aligns with what people consider to be the most important political priorities. Um, let me explain briefly. If you ask people, uh, the public, what are your most important public priorities or the problems you think politicians should face, should do something about, then what always comes out on top is the economy, health, education, jobs, these kind of issues. And climate gets way down below there to maybe 19 out of 20 or something like that, 14 out of 15. Mm. But since health always is one of the top issues, uh, by aligning climate with health, you um, use that as a frame to make its um, felt importance go way up. So quite a bit of research has shown that if you frame or talk about climate in health issues, health terms, then um, there's a willingness to support it goes, goes up. And I think Obama has learned or heard this research too, since now he's going to arrange a climate change and health summit uh, quite soon at the White House. And he's involving the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, another frame that we know works well is the, the risk or the insurance frame. So rather than discussing just the costs of the investments, we should discuss how much are we willing to pay today to avoid a larger risk in the future? And this is what the insurance industry is all about. And today we are, for instance, willing to pay in the order of 2 to 3% of our entire GDP in fire and theft insurance. Hmm. But we hardly pay, we pay more or less zero in terms of climate insurance. Uh, and that's the absurdity of it. So if 
we realize that uh, just as um, uh, defense uh, is also a typical this kind of risk issue, we, we pay for uh, having a strong defense in case something happens. We don't be, really believe that America will be invaded or that kind of stuff, but we need uh, a strong defense because we might experience a war again. Right. And in the same way, we could argue that uh, we don't really know that the, er, that the wor- world is going to burn up, but it is a risk, and we should insure ourselves, as we do with defense and fire insurance, against that for happening. It's just plain common business sense. It's prudent. And this has been put forward, put forward in a kind of um, a report written by both Republicans and uh, and uh, Democrats together. I'm thinking about uh, Hank Paulson and Tom Steyer, for instance. They went together to make a report called The Risky Business. And they just spell out the risks to business uh, as if we do not um, insure and pay certain climate investments today. To, to me, it seems like if there is a if there was a 1% chance that all of this is true when it comes to mm. global warming and climate change, then we should probably do something about it. Yet we know that the percentage is way, way higher. So it, it, exactly. it, it feels like that's a really, really good way to, to go at it is saying like, look, the chances, no matter what the chances are, we should do something. You know, we, we make yeah. movies about having asteroid defense systems and things. Yes. Like that. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. This is an actual thing that our scientists have come to us and said, hey, do mm. something about this. Yeah, so uh, that's one frame that's very, very important to use. Not speaking about as uh, expensive, but speaking about as uh, uh, investment uh, in, in insurance. Mm-hmm. And, but there's an even better frame as well to kind of get a more uh, less polarization and more um, bipartisanism here, and that is the opportunity frame. Mm-hmm. But and this has to do with um, uh, all the opportunities for that arise with a new energy system, a new city infrastructure, and smart houses and smart uh, cities and uh, maybe smart even roads. Um, I don't know if you heard about the solar roadways idea. Uh, it came up last year and on Indiegogo, a crowdsourcing um, website, and it went really viral because it showed people an opportunity that they liked so much that they put more, they gave away more money into this startup than any other has achieved in the history of crowdsourcing. And it's, what it really does is it says that we could make smart roads by building solar panels into them and then some LED indicators, and you could have uh, roads that are um, generating more energy than they need and at the same time showing. Um, if uh, alarm signs on the road, if something is happening further down, and they can di- redirect traffic and all these opportunities. Mm-hmm. So what would it really be like to have smart roads and not just dump asphalt roads? And people love this concept. So it just speaks to the power of opportunity in this area. Um, I'm, sure, I'm not saying it's a, it's a great uh, economic idea that it will <laughs> be profitable, but I'm talking about the psychological aspect, how people were fascinated about this. Right. So, yeah. And so these, you know, these things can get so complex. You say that it's important. One of your b- big principles is, is it is important that we try to make sure that this is um, that whatever we're asking people to do is simple and easy, and mm. uh, and not a not a a giant sort of uh, uh, undertaking on part of the individual. Could you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. If you walk into some kind of store and then you want to do a climate friendly purchase uh, and. It's like 80 different brands on the ales or um, 
uh, if I want to buy some household appliance and I wonder which one would be the best in a long-term point of view, it's really hard to, to pick the right products. So what we could do is to apply, apply some principles from behavioral economics uh, to make it much more simple to do what is right. You know, people make a lot of uh, mindless and uh, destructive choices because that's the way uh, we have the economy set up. But the good news is that we could do a little mindless and constructive choices instead. Uh, so we tested out one example that's pretty um, easy to explain is the use of defaults. So let's say, for instance, that you, um, you put all printers into the default of double-sided printing. Uh, so if you don't specify anything, it comes out double-sided. Mm -hmm. And that would save something like 15 to 20% paper, equivalent to taking 150,000 cars off the road if it was applied to all U.S. offices. Wow. And that's just a digital switch. And also, we did one study in Norway where um, we put life cycle cost on the household appliance. So when you walk into a store, you can immediately see what this will not just cost me today as a sales price, but it will cost me over seven or ten years of use. And suddenly, maybe the washing machine, the air conditioner or the tumble dryer that is the cheapest today, you see by with large fonts the, the costs over seven to ten years. So the nudge here is really to redesign the choice architecture or the, uh, the, the layout of the label so that the life cycle cost is printed with large fonts and the, the sales price with somewhat smaller fonts on the same price label. Mm -hmm. And this had the effect that people started buying the more energy efficient appliances because they were cheaper in the long run, but that, they hadn't just known that before. And suddenly, on average, people were buying 5% more, uh, or they were buying household appliances that would reduce their power consumption by 5%. Uh, and if this was applied to all house, household appliances in the EU, we, we calculated, it would be equivalent to 10 million tons of CO2, or like uh, taking 2 million cars off the road. And this is the effect just by redesigning the, the price label. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and another huge aspect of this, and this is something that I've seen come up a lot, especially um, in PR circles, is that you really have to attach some sort of narrative to this, some sort of, yeah. you need to give people the opportunity to understand this in a story format, because we seem to really prefer to receive information in that format. So what are some, uh, some ways you've seen that this works when it comes to the issue of, uh, of climate change, global warming, and that sort of thing? Yeah, what I'm liking now is that um, uh, there's a new... Um, narrative or story emerging among um, uh, both consultancies and business leaders on this that has to do with the resource uh, productivity improvements or what some call the resource revolution and other call the circular economy because it takes um, the story of let's say the 20th century was all brown growth we, we grew our economy by cheap uh, fossil fuels but now the, the age of cheap fossil fuel is over and we have to um, accommodate uh, many billions more of um, middle-class consumers on this planet and we tell the story now how this is going to happen through radical resource uh, efficiency so we can do much more with much less and this is a narrative that applies specifically to uh, business leaders 
and people who are focused on uh, opportunities. Um, on the other side, to, uh, to other segments of the population, maybe religious people or uh, people who are um, more engaged by moral issues, uh, there's a there's, uh, new story coming up on uh, the greening of religion. So I don't know if you notice now that the Pope is coming out very strongly right, right. in favor of it. And uh, so the, the story of stewardship within uh, our society becomes more important than the dominance uh, story, the, the domination of nature. Uh, so religions all over the world seem to be reinventing themselves as, uh, as kind of green um, uh, narratives about how uh, what's the rightful place of humanity uh, on this planet that uh, God created. Um, there's also another narrative that says that this economic growth that we had for so long doesn't really cut it anymore. People don't get any happier. So what we really need is a description of a society that would make us more, give us a higher quality of life. What's our dream? What's our what, what's the type of society that we really like to live in? And this, I have a dream type of stories uh, are very, very important to create a sense of uh, meaning and community uh, and give a deep motivation for moving ahead with, uh, with the climate uh, action. Mm. And it also, it's fundamentally bi uh, not polarizing if you can frame it in these ways. That's fantastic. And so you're, and to pull all that together, you said that the, the, our last thing we need to do is somehow, you know, provide feedback to people, give people signals so that they can, uh, you know, employ all this stuff in their lives. What are, what are some great ways to do that? Yeah. Um, you know, the climate issue has had some key signals that has been um, foc in focus, and that is uh, the PPM values of the atmosphere of CO2. But you know, that's about that's an indicator that people can't relate to, uh, like 400 or 410 or 380, what have you. Uh, and also, they'll be talking about sea level rise in terms of inches per decade or something like that, which is impossible for people to see. So the whole point is that you need to find indicators and signals that feels relevant to people's responses. Not just signals that say something about the global state of the world, but how are we in our society responding? Are we actually... Um, starting to turn the curve the right direction. And we can do this on an individual level, level uh, or a co company level, or a city level, uh, or a national level. But we should stick to the signals that are comparable across these levels. So, for instance, uh, one Norwegian bank are now developing um, uh, CO2 uh, bank statement that comes along with your ordinary bank statement. So if you go into your internet bank, you can suddenly see the CO2 impacts of your um, purchases, for instance. That would give you a monthly feedback on how your uh, consumption um, plays out in terms of uh, climate emissions. And also you could easily link that with um, ads or stories or examples of how it could be improved. So that would be on the personal level. We could also have a look at what we could do on the commercial or co corporate level. And we've developed there an indicator that compares how much um, do you increase your gross profits compared to your um, emissions. Some people call that for carbon intensity. And the whole point is that previously, industry have heard that uh, the enviros and the climate activists are saying, no, we have to stop growth. We have to kill growth. However, 
the opportunity here is that we can continue the economic growth as long as you also reduce your emissions, and that's actually profitable. And further, it gives a clear signal as to what is a real green growth and what is a typical brown growth. So is your company really a part of the solution or is it part of the problem? That becomes perfectly measurable and clear if we follow this uh, carbon intensity per uh, company indicator. Uh, the question that's been driving me all these years is uh, whether humans are, shall we say, inevitably short-term. Right. And what I've found is a very positive conclusion that we're not inevitably short-term, but we have to need, we, we need a little bit help of the social conditions around us. So if we have social norms, supportive frames, simple actions, uh, meaningful stories and signals that are perceived as personally relevant, then people will actually act for the long term. Mm -hmm. So it's really up, it's just our culture where we have kind of lost the support. Most other cultures in the history of the earth have had social norms and frames and actions that made it simple for them to, to behave in line with their ecosystems. Uh, and that's just what we have to reestablish in our culture as well. That's fantastic, yeah. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. To learn more about Per Espen Stocknays, go to his website. It's S-T-O-K-N-E-S.com, stocknays.com. Head to boingboingpodcast.com for more great podcasts like this one. Go to youarenotsosmart.com for the show notes. And for previous episodes, you can also go to iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud for all the previous episodes. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is Banjo Apocalypse. You can find us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I'm on Twitter at David McCraney. Facebook, it's just slash You Are Not So Smart. And as always, you can send your cookie recipes to David at YouAreNotSoSmart.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.